Welcome to the Wolfhounds Podcast from the DMZ and beyond. Hear stories, memories, and more from the Vietnam veterans who served faithfully in Vietnam. You've never heard Vietnam like this. Welcome to the microphone, your host. Did this guy even serve? Tim Quintrell. Ooh, river. Thank you, Doc. What's happening, everybody? Happy Thursday. We are in season one, episode four. Can you believe we've got four episodes under our belt? If you have not had a chance to listen to the Wolfhound podcast and this is your first time, welcome aboard. If you have listened, thanks for being a faithful Wolfhound enthusiast. And uh, we just want to get things started. We've got a very special guest with us today. But first, before I introduce her, I want to bring you to the Alpha Wolfhound himself, John, Big John Quintrell. How's it going, brother? Hey, Big Tim, we're we're broadcasting again live and direct from an undisclosed location in Helena, Montana. In, in the bunker. It, oh, in a bunker, yeah. It's a beautiful day, a little <laughs> overcast here. It looks like we're going to be in the 80s today, so it's going to be a beautiful day, maybe high 70s. And I want to especially thank Becky Bruns for being with us, our special guest. Uh, Becky and I have known each other ever since... Uh, I was in Vietnam, so we've we've known each other and been friends for all those years. Becky, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I actually wish she would have said, thank you very much. Can I be in charge for a while? That would have been appropriate uh, <laughs> Vietnam era introduction. So, Becky, uh, you live in Montana. What what part of Montana? We live in Great Falls. Okay. And how long, how many years have you lived there? Uh, 19 now. Doesn't seem possible. What uh, what gave you the onus to move to Montana? Why did you move there? Well, we started um, when we finally could afford to start vacationing. Um, we started. We had kept in contact with Big John through the years after he and Russ were together, and we started going out there on vacation. And so we loved the area, and we decided that that's where we wanted to be when we retired. So we started making the plans on the five-year plan, and it took five renews before we finally made it out here. So we ran away from home. So you guys moved out to, to be closer to John and his wife, Laura. They live in well, Helena. You live about an hour and 20 minutes away, and you must really like that guy. I think that uh, we, we probably need to set up a psychology appointment because I've heard he's been awful mean to Russell over the years. Well, it's pretty reciprocated so yeah they they deserve <laughs> times yeah we we moved out here because we decided we loved the area and and it was time to vacate illinois so yeah. gotcha so uh you know part of our purpose uh several people have asked why the wolfhound podcast becky and i just want to uh bring you up to speed our goal is to share the message the memories the hope the courage uh, of what it took to go to Vietnam and then what it took after Vietnam to deal with things that happened along the journey. And last week, Becky, uh, in fact, the last two episodes, we had the privilege of having Bob Moose Mollenauer on, and he talked about his service, his injury, and his life after that. And so uh, the reason you're on today is actually my wife has been listening and loves the podcast. And she said, how come you don't have 
one of the wives on to tell their side of the story. And I thought, well, you know what? That's good. So we, I'm going to talk to you about Russell's service a little bit and then about Russell's injury. And we might get through this in one, but we might do two episodes on this. So we'll just see how it goes. So uh, buckle in, buckle up, and here we go. So how many years have you and Russ been married? Uh, 54 come December. 54 years. So you got married when you were 11? Yeah. Actually, I was seven. (laughs) Actually, actually, Tim, actually, they got married in a fever. Hotter than a pepper sprout. (laughs) Thank you, Johnny. (laughs) How how old were you when you got married, Becky? 18. Actually, I, I misquoted. We have been married 54. It will be 54. Five come December. My bad. Oh my lord! Fifty-five. You know what, Becky? Becky, you know that what I'm about to say, don't you? Because I have been in contact with the Vatican, (laughs) and I have put you in for sainthood before. You know, usually a person has to die before they're sainted. I know, but the Pontiff is really con- seriously considering giving you sainthood before you die just for the fact that you've been able to put up with Russell all these years. Well, if they need personal references to make that happen, I have some children and grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the confusion there is that they wanted a, a second reference and they asked me why she shouldn't. I said it would be because they've been your friend for so long, John. Oh, so great. I- <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Let's get back to the topic at hand. Yeah. Uh, 50 years. When did you meet Russ? First of all, well, I was in a office occupations class my senior year. And so I worked in the office and he worked in the shop of the sign company that I went to work for. That's awesome. Um, the, the, um, there was a dare involved in me asking him out because he was so quiet and shy. Not that you guys would believe that he is extremely quiet and kind of a, a introvert, but he is. And hmm. that um, I got dared to ask him to my senior graduation dance. And the guys in the shop knew what had happened. And they were guilted him into asking me out after to pay me back for. So, yeah, it was kind of a weird setup. But there was there was a lot of uh, pushing on both sides to make it happen. But did I guess. You, did, did you, uh, Becky, did he go to the dance with you during that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he, he did. Yep, he did. And then the guys in the shop said, well, you have to, you know, you have to reciprocate. If yeah. you have halfway decent time, at least you need to take her back out. So we went to see the War Wagon movie. That was good because I like John Wayne and Western. So I guess it was fate right there. Well, uh, fate has it that he gets a letter in the mail. Is that correct about his service to this country? Is that is that how did how did his uh, tour in Vietnam come about? You got to back up, Tim, because you got to get these two married first. They're not; they're just going together now. But they get married before Russ gets the letter. Yeah, you're, ki- I- you're kidding, right? You you actually got married before he went to yeah. Vietnam. Of course. Yeah. He got married on December 2nd, his 20th birthday, and he got the dear John, or not the dear John, the dear Russell, we need you. 
letter in, um, let's see, it would have been February. So we were married three months and he was gone. Three months. Do you remember where you spent your honeymoon? Uh, yeah, we went to Chicago and spent the long weekend up there. So three months married, what was your initial reaction when you got told that uh, your brand new husband was going to Vietnam? Well, needless to say, we were in shock and not very happy because he was a reluctant draftee. That's not what his game plan had been. But anyway, but he he did what he needed to do, but it was rather hard. As my dad said, I just lost you this year as a tax deduction, and now you're coming back with no <laughs> <laughs> so when Russ went to um leave you guys uh was there was there I mean granted were you 19 years old now when you're so did you guys court for a while or date for a while before you got married oh no our first date was in June the 6th and we got married December 2nd so I'm still 18 so you've not even known been with him for a year and here he goes to Vietnam. What was it like for you to to, you know, say goodbye to Russell for for that short period of time when when he initially left for basic training? What was it like for you? It was uh, very difficult. So anyway, yeah, it was very hard. Yeah, I I mean, here you are, you're just starting your life together and um the love of your life is is going away and and how did how did it work for basic training now i'm i'm asking this and some people probably you know veterans might understand but those of us that aren't it, it it's there's a difference between going into the army a single man and a married man is isn't that correct like not that russell had privileges but russell was married so did that afford him any extra visitation or things like oh. that Nope. Nope. Everything was just the way the army is. So doesn't, doesn't matter. Nope. Well, but, but that'll, we'll talk about that later. Cause didn't he get a, uh, didn't he get a R and R and you were able to come see him? Is that correct? You mean during basic? No, after when he was serving, I'm sorry. Yeah. When oh. he served, I think he got an R and R and didn't you get to go see him? Well, oh, in Vietnam, you mean, mm -hmm. or yeah. In or Vietnam. No, he had a 30-day leave before he went to Nam, and then after basic, he got his 30-day leave, and then he left. And then when he was in Vietnam, he didn't—he did not get there. He was not there long enough to for the six months to uh, be able to go on RR. But okay. he told wasn't going even if he was there the whole time. He was not going, and I was not coming to see him. Wow! Wow! He, didn't want to say goodbye again. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 very powerful. Um, okay, so let's go back. He comes home from basic training, and uh, what is it like for you to see your husband? He's been gone. How long was he gone at basic? Um, let me think. Eight weeks. Yeah, eight weeks. Yep. He left the end of March, and he came home in July. I think, it, yeah, it was July because he left for Vietnam on August the 25th. So it was mid middle of July when he got to come home. We did get to see him after part of, no, I take that back. Eight weeks basic, we got to see him before he went to Fort Polk. So we saw him like on an Easter weekend. Um, and then for, he went to AIT, Advanced then, Infantry Training. 
He went to Fort Polk, Louisiana. Then he knew where he was going for sure. He knew he was cool water buffalo going. So <laughs> now, now did you guys, obviously we didn't have cell phones back then. And I'm sure that a phone call was probably few and far between. So did you guys write back and forth to each other? Yeah. Yep. How many we letters, did. how many letters do you think you guys wrote back and forth? Oh, I know. I wrote to him a couple of times a week and I'm sure he wrote back to me as he could, but I'm sure we have a few of those letters. Oh, that's I have great. a few of those letters too, Becky. I, I hope. Oh, yeah. But yeah. yeah, I wrote to him quite often when he was in, in country, but um, yeah, he didn't have a chance to write back too often, but they hey, were in. Hey, Tim, get this. Becky wrote to Russ for six months, and then she wrote to me for six months. Gotta support the troops. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, sainthood, that's all I got to say is putting up with your shenanigans. <laughs> so what's it like the day that you have to say goodbye when he's getting deployed? I mean, this is this is we're in uncharted territory, so forgive me if my questions seem a little... Uh, you know, close and personal, but what's it like the day that you have to say goodbye to him and he's going to Vietnam? Well, we were at the Peoria airport and I ended up buying a ticket to go to Chicago with him. And then of course I couldn't go any farther than that. Cause he was on, you know, frontier airlines or whoever to go to Chicago mm -hmm. had to leave out of Chicago to catch the plane, to go to, end up going to Alaska and then over. So, but yeah, I wasn't willing to quite let him go, but I had to leave when I dropped him at Chicago. And I, and I'm already assuming that was highly emotional and very difficult for both of you. Ru Russell's a very tender hearted man. For those of you that don't know Russ, he is a very, Russell's a gentle giant. You don't want to put Russ in the corner, but he is very soft-spoken and very, very in love with his wife and a very good father. And, and uh, so that, that was a very challenging time, I'm guessing. And you yeah. know, big and you know, big Tim as as Becky is saying that I it brought back a real uh, memory for me. I'll never forget uh, my mom and dad and sister actually uh, went to the airport with me, and as I was going down the through the ramp there to go get to the plane, I turned around, and the three of them were standing there, and my mom and sister were were crying. And my dad, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he start tears started running down his face, and that was only the second time in my life I ever saw my dad cry. And mm. I'll tell you what, that does something to you, you know. So you know, when Russell looked back to at Becky, I'm sure that she was probably crying. And and that's you know, as a veteran, when we're leaving home and when we're getting on that plane, it's a very highly charged emotional uh, situation for us as well. So Becky, that uh, those emotions were pretty high, obviously. And uh, you guys were just kids. I mean, you were, you were, <laughs> you were still a, a, you know, a young adult at that point. Yep. So Russell goes to Vietnam. You guys, uh, you guys communicate. You write letters back and forth during that time. Yep. Send good boxes as I could. Family members sent stuff to him as he. They didn't get a lot of it though, but we did send it. 
what what did you send? What were some things you would send uh, him in in a care package? Oh, popcorn, cookies, um, Vienna sausages, little cans of like green beans and things like that. That you know, you, just anything like that. Uh, send him a Christmas tree with his Christmas package, just a little like eight inch Christmas tree. Oh, never got that. He was in the hospital field hospital for they thought he had malaria i guess at that time so he never got that package but there were all kinds ants sent him sausages and some cheese sometimes and you know different things like that to try to support them would you ever send a picture or a handkerchief with perfume on it or anything like uh, that never did do that nope i don't remember sending pictures because i probably didn't have a camera so and mm. i know he one so would you ever in the letters ask like, you know, how's, how is Vietnam? What's going on? Would he, would he ever tell you what was going on over there? Um, occasionally he would tell me some things, but he didn't tell me very much. So he was pretty vague about the, there, there was a lot of bad stuff going on over there. And Russell, unfortunately was in, in a lot of the bad, the bad days in Vietnam. And I know dad, uh, wrote a book about it. And him and Russ are all through that book. A lot of it, you know, Russ had some very unfortunate days. And um, did he, it, when he was in Vietnam, he didn't really talk to you about all that stuff. That's correct. Well, he did some. Some things were vague. You know, they talk about walking in the field for eight hours up to his waist or higher in mud and, you know, walking the rivers and doing some things. But I remember one thing in particular. Um, he sent a letter and it was about something about a bee's nest, walking into a bee's nest or a wasp nest or something and bees everywhere and somebody hit it. I don't know. It was that was kind of really just weird. And I remember him talking about snakes and some of the people, but never anything about any of the action that they saw. And, and, and yet he didn't want to worry anybody. And, you know, Big Tim, a lot of people don't realize this. But Russell and I actually walked into the platoon on the same day. And when we went and talked to Sergeant Glover, it was Ray and Russ and myself. The three of us showed up at the same time. And Sergeant Glover put Russ and I together as bunker buddies. And we uh, stayed that way. We were bunker buddies until uh, Russ left uh, after he got hurt after six months of being together. So Russ and I had a special uh, friendship and a special relationship starting right from the very beginning. And a lot, a lot of people probably don't know that. Yeah, well, you that, were newbies together. Newbies. What's that, Be what was that, Becky? That you were newbies together. Yep. Well, and uh, Russell was uh, weighed about 94 pounds soaking wet. Is that correct back then? That was pretty close. Yeah, he was probably 115 pounds if he was that and being 5'11 and a half. So he was a string bean. Yet I've heard that Russell carried around a 60 caliber uh, big gun. Is that is that did I say that correctly? I, no, what it, no, it was a 90 uh, millimeter recoilless rifle. It looked like it looked like a a, a small uh, howitzer that he carried on his shoulder. And uh, of all the guys in the platoon that would volunteer to carry that, you would never have thought that the skinniest 
guy in the in the platoon would do that. But you know, I I later found out with being with Russ that he has a different outlook and a different attitude about things. And if somebody tells him he can't do something, or if somebody tells him, you know, it would probably be better if you let somebody else do that, that's that's a that's like a challenge. And Russell loves challenges, and he'll do uh, he will do and be successful at whatever whatever that challenge is. And that's how it was with that ninety recoilless. So, Dad, uh, obviously, I first time I've called you Dad on the podcast. Uh, uh, so, Dad, tell us about the kind of soldier that Russ was. I know Becky, you know, uh, can speak to a lot of things, but I want you to just speak for a few minutes about the kind of man he was and, and he was, you guys were together. Tell us about his role. Tell us about some of the stuff that, that he went through there. Russ was just a great guy and a great man and a great soldier all in one. And it didn't take he and I very long to become really close friends. And, uh, you know, when you're with somebody day after day and night after night, uh, you get to know somebody pretty well. And Russ was, uh, I don't know the exact word, but Russ was just a good man. So, and and uh, it wasn't because I didn't try to influence him to be a bad man, because I did. I tried, I tried on many occasions to get him to smoke a cigarette, and he wouldn't do that. And I think I probably wanted to share my Playboy magazine with him and he wouldn't do that. And so when I say that, I mean that this guy was just, he was a straight arrow and he was just a good man. But as a soldier, he went far. He went far and beyond. He, If there was a job to be done, as an example, when we were filling sandbags, Russell probably filled twice as many sandbags as the rest of us, just because that's the way he was. And, uh, he was like when Becky would send a care package, you know, he'd open that up. And the first thing he'd do is offer me, you know, some of the cookies or whatever. And, uh, and by the way, those care packages, Becky, were so important. And people don't realize what it meant to a guy to get a care package from home. And uh, they were really important. And so Russ, Russ and I went through Vietnam for six months together and you had alluded earlier about us getting into some pretty deep stuff, and and uh, we did. That we we were uh, standing side by side on at least uh, more than a couple of occasions where we got ambushed, and and the bullets were flying right next to our heads, and so forth. And and uh, both of us were probably scared out of our wits. But having said that. Uh, Russell was never late in response. In other words, the you know, we were always taught if you get ambushed, you shoot back as quickly as you can. And Russell was always one of the first guys that would get himself in position and, and return fire. So that says something about the man, you know, itself. I, I, I just can't say enough about what a what a great man and a great soldier Russ was and is today. Becky, do you feel like uh, you could you could explain maybe one of Russell's worst days in Vietnam? Hmm. Well, probably not just because he really never said that awful much. But I know a couple things he talked about was uh, 
when he got to be a grave robber. That was pretty rough on him. Dad, what? Uh, tell us a little bit about what happened that day when he, you and him and others were tell tell us that story. Well, the you know this is this was one of the worst days in my life in Vietnam, and uh, an artillery officer uh, took our platoon out to go uh, look search through a grid that he had shot H and I artillery the night before which is harassment and interdictment, what they do is they shoot in a given grid and they're hoping that, you know, uh, Charlie is out there walking around and that they get hit by the artillery. And then we went out the next day. He took us out the next day to supposedly uh, count the bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Do the body count. And uh, unfortunately for him, uh, there was no bodies. There was no blood trails, there was no drag marks, there was nothing. But I will tell you this, we had up to that point had never seen the destruction that artillery can do to an area. I mean, it was like, it was unbelievable. Everything was destroyed. The the uh, trees were, were shattered. Uh, I mean, it was just unbelievable. And of course, the smell of the of the cordite explosions and all this kind of stuff. So towards the about midday, this officer started to get frustrated and he visibly was going, you know, there's got to be bodies here someplace. You know, I can't, I can't justify shooting, you know, all night long, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of artillery and come home empty handed. And so as we went along, we, we came upon a village and there was a graveyard on the edge of the village. Hmm. And so he said, let's go over and, and check that out. Now, his thought was, is sometimes when a VC or an NVA would get killed in the middle of the night, they would, the soldiers would try to bury him as soon as possible. It had to do with their uh, Buddhist uh, belief that they had to be buried within 24 hours to go to heaven or whatever. So in his mind, he was hoping that, you know, some of the people that were killed by his artillery would have been buried in this graveyard. And as as it would be, when we got there, there were four fresh graves. And so he just thought, boy, I've hit the jackpot. Well, I don't know. And, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I don't know how he picked Russell and I, but he told us, he said, go over there and uncover that grave. He said, and he was sure that it was going to be full of weapons and ammo and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so as Russell and I knelt down, uh, you know, I remember uh, he dug and I pulled the dirt away. So, I mean, it Ugh. was, you know, and then, uh, of course, it was weird because these bodies weren't in coffins. They just put planks of wood over the top of them. They, it was a real shallow grave. And uh, when we got down to it, of course, uh, you know, I don't want to gross anybody out, but you can imagine what it smelled like. And when we took the boards off, here it was, lo and behold, just a civilian guy. And I, well, I'll never forget, there was a little bowl of rice above his head and and, and a little, uh, some kind of a little Buddhist uh, charm or something. I don't know what you'd call it. And uh, I think there was a, a teacup or something there. And, uh, and then there was a little thing that looked like a ladder. And that was in there. And that supposedly, I think, the Buddhists thought that that was how they 
stairway to heaven or something. I'm not sure. But so we uncovered this. And of course, there was nothing in there, but the body, there was no weapons or anything. And we thought, well, the you know, number one, it was sickening, you know, for, for both of us. It was a sickening event. And then you got all these guys sitting around, you know, making comments like, you know, you're, you know, grave robbers and all this stuff. And, and so then when we were done with that, he said, go do the second one. Mm. And so then we ended up doing the second one. And there were four graves total. And we ended up uncovering three graves and there was nothing. They were all the same. And uh, so then the guy said, go do the fourth one. And Russell and I said, we're not going to do it. We're done. You know, and, and he says, I'm giving you a direct order. And I turned to him and I said, look, you can bust me down to E nothing. I'm not going to do this again. And Russell said the same thing. He said, we're, we're through with this. We're not going to do it. So then he turned to, to Jimmy Langley, who, who is, was his RTO that day. And he says, Jimmy, you go over there and do it. And Langley, he, he got the dirt off the top. And when he got to the planks, he turned around and threw up and got sick and, and looked at, at the lieutenant and said, I can't do this anymore. And Jimmy, I couldn't believe it. He looked at him and he said, if you want to uncover this, do it yourself. Mm. And, and, you know, that was like, you didn't talk to officers like that. But so this joker takes out his bayonet and he sticks it down between the two cracks in the planks. And uh, he must have hit uh, the guy's stomach or something because all kinds of gases and liquids and stuff come up through that crack and got all over his pants and his and his boots and of course the smell was horrific and everybody was grabbing their you know putting their towel over their face and I mean it was just it was horrific and uh so and th this is weird so then he goes okay we're going getting out of here he didn't have anybody cover up the graves all these graves are exposed and Jimmy Langley told me you know, 35 years later, as they were leaving the village, he told Jimmy, call in for body count. And and so that's that's how that went. So this guy goes back in, probably got a citation in his, on his record, maybe even, you know, got a promotion out of the deal because he went out and, and, and got for body count, which of course he didn't. But that's kind of the way it went in Vietnam. You know, it was kind of an unfortunate thing. Officers got promoted based on body count. And so it lent, it lent itself for inaccurate uh, information and counts and so forth. But that was the, that was the grave digging incident. And, and, you know, Becky said that was one of the worst days uh, he ever had in Vietnam. Well, one of the worst days I ever had in my life came, you know, I don't know, probably 25 uh, years later when Becky and Russ came out to visit uh they always would come and, and we'd see them for two or three days. And whenever they'd get ready to leave, I'll never forget how sad I got. I mean, I, I would just, I'd get very emotional when, when they'd get ready to leave. And on one occasion, Russ came up to me and I always gave him a hug, but this time he didn't give me a hug. He kind of stepped back and he said, he looked at me and he says, do you have any idea what kind of trouble you've given me. And I go, I thought he was kidding. I thought he was going to say some smart ass thing. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, he says, do you have any idea how much 
counseling I've had to have over over you and I go wow what are you serious and he goes yeah he says do you remember when we were digging those graves and I said never forget it I'll never forget it and he goes well you looked at me and you said even God can't forgive us for this and he says do you know what he said that absolutely struck my heart mm. and he says I I have lived with that all these years. And you know, Tim, I'm going to tell you something. It was like putting a spear in my heart right there at that moment, because I couldn't believe I, I'd forgotten all about that. I hadn't even thought, you know, about me saying that. But that was how I felt. You know, I felt like this was so horrendous. This was so heinous that, you know, this was evil, what, what this guy was making us do. And so, all those years, and all I could do is hold him, and I'll never forget, we just both bawled our eyes out, and, and uh, you know, I told him uh, how sorry I was and, and so forth. But, you know, and it's nothing, you know, it's nothing that anybody does on purpose. It's just at the moment, that's how I felt. You know, I just felt like this was such a horrible thing. So that's the grave digging story. And uh, when Becky said that was one of the most horrible days you know, we had in Vietnam, I'm telling you that that stayed with us the rest of our lives. You know, that's why we're doing this podcast, because there's a lot of stuff that never got talked about, never got said, never got exposed. And, you know, people can say what they want. But, you know, like you said, here's an opportunity for upper management to punch their ticket, to try and get a promotion, to try and get some kind of benefit. And they have no idea what it did to scar and wound and, and cause men pain for years. You know, that's the, a lot of what you men found and saw in Vietnam. Some of it's never left you to this day. Well, listen, we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be with you again with Becky Bruns on the Wolfhound podcast. You want more of the Wolfhounds? Check them out on the web at www wolfhoundssecond27.org you can also follow the wolfhounds on facebook wolfhound second 27th you want more go see over a hundred interviews with vietnam veterans who faithfully serve their country at youtube.com look up the wolfhounds forever channel now back to the show welcome back to the wolfhounds podcast with john big john quintrell and our very very special guest becky bruns wife of Russell Bruns, who served faithfully in Vietnam and uh, was there and uh, did his country well, served his country well. You've heard about some of the some of the tough times about leaving home uh, before 20 years old, going over to Vietnam to serve his country, leaving his wife. And you got to hear some of the rough parts of being there, some of the unfortunate that happened when he was there. And now Becky... Uh, and Big Tim, let me break in here real quick. I want to give a shout out to Larry Lemire, who I know is listening from Michigan, and Ray Bourgeois, I know he's listening, and he's holding down the fort in North Carolina today. And of course, there's Ari Hill out there in Florida, and Tommy, Tommy Clack is in Georgia. He's uh, uh, holding the fort down there, and of course, he's always got, it, got himself involved in some kind of veteran project. So I just wanted to uh, not let it go too far before I acknowledged, you know, some of these great men that I know are listening to us today. 
Yeah, it's awesome. Sending shout outs to the men and women who faithfully served and uh, like Moose Mollenhauer, who uh, was with us for a couple of episodes. So, Becky, let me ask you this. We talked about some of the some of the unfortunate situations of Russell's service in Vietnam and what it was like for a kid. I mean, he was just a kid going off to serve, and we're so thankful for that. But I want to talk to you about one of the worst days in Vietnam beyond that, and that was uh, when Russ got injured. Do you do you have uh, any recollection of when Russell got injured? Yeah, it was February 4th, 1968. And where were 69, sorry. Yep. And where were you at that point? Where was I? I was at home. Um, when I got the telegram delivered to my house. So wait, you didn't get a phone call. You got a telegram. Yeah. Got a telegram delivered to the, my mom and dad's house where I was living. I had just gotten laid off from work. So I happened to be home that day. And, um, so yeah, so that was kind of a wide awakening for a 19 year old, but that's okay. <laughs> now, now let, now let me ask you this. How, so what day, so you, you give me the date range. The telegram came how many days after the injury? I think I probably got it within probably within 24 hours. So, cause I received it. I received it either on the 4th or the 5th. It was in the morning. That's all I remember. So it was probably the morning of the 5th. Wow, that's that's amazing. So so what's your you did they tell me if you can remember tell me what the telegram said or give me the gist of it. It just said that um he'd been injured in action and that what his eye injury was, which you know, it was a technical thing. I had absolutely no clue. So, and, um, so I quick made a phone call to the, our, our ophthalmologist doctor that I'd gone to. So I called and asked him what that was. And they explained to me that he had lacerations on his cornea and depending on how badly they were, you know, they couldn't tell by that, but they explained what the medical thing was. And so that I knew at least it affected his eyesight and, um, then I quick called, my mom was home, so I told her, and I quick called my Russell's aunt, who just lived down the street from his mom, because I guess they they were also going to deliver a telegram to his mom mm. and by herself. And so I quick called the aunt and said, go to mom's house quick, I'll be there. And I was about 20 minutes away, so I drove over to the house so that I could be with her. So, did you, Becky, did you get there before the telegram or, or after? Um, no, I got there after, but his aunt was there. Yeah. Delivered the telegram. So when's, when did you actually hear from Russ? So you, you got that telegram within 24 hours. When did you get to talk to Russ? Oh, let me think. I don't even know if I actually uh, it was kind of a blur. Um, yeah, I don't think I actually talked to him until he was at Yokohama Hospital. And then all I, it was a very brief conversation that he was going to be there. He didn't know how long. And they were going to move him stateside, but he didn't know when. But now, at you, least his voice. Now, Yokohama, I'm going to assume that's Japan. Yeah. 
he was went first of all to Coochie where they did the basic stuff they had to do, you know, got him stabilized. He was there, I think, two or three days. And then they flighted him out to Yokohama Hospital where they had, um, you know, ophthalmology top doctors that could do what needed to be done. And so, then, okay, so you understand you, now do you i'm sure after all these years you understood what happened in that firefight him and moose are in a in a bunker situation and basically the guy shot at him for what seemed forever and they were trying to you know the, I, don't, I don't think the guy was more than 100 feet away and he just kind of beat them on the draw finally and do, do you do you remember or recall what happened to russ in that moment well, he told me that they were start they got attacked in the night and that he heard one of the RPGs, I think it was called, drop into the bunker where Moose and the other guys were and could hear them that he knew they were hurt really bad. And then he fired back when he saw where the flash came from. And then, of course, they reciprocated because with that 90, apparently they knew exactly where he was. And he got around right in his face, I mean, right in front of him. And it put shrapnel in his eyes. And he had a small piece in his ribs, which he's still carrying because they couldn't take it out. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not was inconsequential. So but, yeah, he caught the the sand and the shrapnel in his eyes because he was laying on his belly, I guess, when he fired it. And then he proceeded, knowing that the guys were hurt, looking, he went, crawled back to wherever the medic was, yelling for the medic to come help those guys. That's pretty much all I know of what happened. And then the doc, of course, realized he was hurt and got him settled so he could go help the other guys. Well, Becky, I just want to thank you so much for being vulnerable with us. And uh, it's very rare that we get to hear uh, a wife's side of the story and uh, so just some of the things you shared with us today. And I know we're just starting to scratch the surface, but we're going to ask you to join us again for another episode of the Wolfhound podcast so that we can hear more about this. We've just touched the surface. So Becky, until next time, we appreciate you. We certainly thank, uh, thank the Lord for Russell and his service and for his bravery and, and uh, John, big John, I appreciate you. Uh, keeping us filled in on the details. And so until next time, remember Wolfhounds forever. We'll see you soon. You want more of the Wolfhounds? Go to the Wolfhounds website, wolfhoundsecond27th.org. Join us on YouTube for over 100 interviews. Keywords, Wolfhounds forever. Until next time, remember this. The freedom of this great nation was built on the blood, sweat, tears, and graves of those brave men and women who served and served this country well. Thanks to all our Wolfhounds brothers and sisters. Nek Espera Tarrant. Mm -hmm.